standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. Our guest this week is best-selling author Jane Thin. Jane was married to fellow best-selling scribe Philip Kerr until his death in 2018 and her upcoming novel Widowland is inspired by reactions to her new status as a widow. We chat about Widowland and about why some alternative histories are closer to reality than we might think, as well as the status of widows in the past and today. Jane also chats incredibly openly about her experiences of losing her husband and about how it's altered her attitude to life, possessions and, well, the wisdom of choosing computer passwords. I really enjoyed this chat and I got a lot from it and I hope that you do too. Until next time. I'm joined by Jane Thin, novelist and broadcaster and author of upcoming book Widowland. Thank you for joining us, Jane. Great to be with you. Now, the last year we have been... This is a way to start an interview, right? The last year we have been surrounded by death. It's something we fear. It's something we don't talk about. Even though, actually... Most experts generally agree that it's actually a really good thing to talk about. We just don't. So first thing to say is thank you for being one of those people that does talk about it. Could I start by asking you about your husband, Philip, and the circumstances of his death? Philip was a writer called Philip Kerr, who is quite a well-known thriller writer. And he died in 2018 at the age of 62. We've known each other 30 years, you know, half my life, really. Mm. And it was very rapid, his death. And I learnt, well, we all learnt, me and my three children learnt an awful lot from it about death and about life and grappling with mortality. And obviously, it goes without saying, it changed all four of us tremendously. What happened was that he had such a typical alpha male. He'd had a nagging back pain, which he'd not wanted to address because he was busy and he had a book tour in America and he was feeling very tired. All these things are huge red flags. You know, any doctor listening would immediately say, get it checked out. And he did get it checked out, but only by people who knew about backs. And actually, unfortunately, it wasn't his back. It, It was a cancer that was actually on his kidney and by the time he was finally diagnosed it was a stage four cancer so it was it had spread such was the man that when we went to the oncologist and we sat in the office and this poor doctor had to say to Philip I'm afraid you know it can't be cured he said how long have I got and she said well I'd say between one and two years but She was obviously desperate to say something positive. And she said, but I have known once somebody who survived for five years. And I remember Phil got in the car and he said, I've got five years. And that was very, very typical of him. He felt himself to be invincible. And in the event, he had seven months. And in those seven months, I and my children nursed him at home. And it changes everything. Anybody listening would know that losing somebody very close and actually being deeply involved in looking after them as they die will always change your whole approach to life. And it did and has. And 
where Widowland comes about. Shortly after Philip died, I was having lunch with a very old friend and he said all the usual commiserations and he said, look, you know, we'd love to invite you to dinner. And I said, oh, that's great. You know, and he said, but the thing is, we only have couples to dinner. Oh, my God. And this was very, it was very shocking to me. And I remember walking home and thinking, oh, I'm living in Widowland now. And then thinking... What if Widowland was actually a place rather than just a metaphor? And actually running up to my office and writing down the synopsis of the plot, which has never in 11 or 12 novels that I've written ever happened to me before. But that was the origin of this story, which when you read it is not really a meditation on death, but in fact a fast-paced thriller. But it was that idea that you overnight step into a different category Mm of womanhood and that the world sees you as as marginalized it was a big shock actually but it's the thing about Philip's death is uh, I also want to put on record that he was incredibly brave and courageous and so his death was a, a great sort of inspiration in so many ways to us do you know I've got a question here about what's the right thing to say and what's the wrong thing to say and Jesus that is the wrong thing to say that staggers me it really does it's just said in in a, in a certain kind of gaucheness, really. I mean, some men can be a bit like that, you know, and I'm sure it wasn't intended as, as, as you know, meanly or anything like that. But it was very, very interesting when you see yourself portrayed in a different way. You've thought of yourself in one way, busy, mm. kind of professional husband, three children, you know, that kind of thing. And suddenly you're in a different category. And since that... I've really thought very much about a situation in which women who are single, either because they're widowed or because they're single or divorced, can find themselves tremendously marginalised by a society that is terrified of solitude. Because this is the other thing I'm interested in after lockdown, is the terror, not just of death, obviously that's a terror, but a terror of solitude and loneliness. And I think a lot of people, when you're married or in a couple situation, you look at singles and you you mentally cross yourself with holy oil. (laughs) Never going to happen to me or if it happened to me in a long, long time. It's very interesting to have experienced both states and, you know, to see to see how life looks from the other side of the track. Although having said that, in my, my novel, as you'll know, widows are regarded with horror by the authoritarian regime and actually physically confined in ghetto areas called widow lands. Do you know, it's interesting you say all of that because I am single. I am what would traditionally have been said spinster. I've never been married. I, I definitely do think that there is something about the idea of that there is a chair next to me that exists for my hypothetical partner and who are we going to fill it with? Why we fear uneven numbers in that sense when it comes to social events really, really befuddles me. Society continues to be very uneasy by the idea of a woman who is who is not in a couple. In the novel, it's an alternative history in which in 1940, instead of Britain going to war under Churchill, Britain has achieved an alliance with Germany. England has become a protectorate. Churchill has not been prime minister. The rest of Europe has been conquered. And the protector, who was a real Nazi called Alfred Rosenberg, 
protector of England, has very clear views about the role and status of women. And he's instituted a caste system in which there are high value women and several gradations and the lowest value of women are women over 50 who have no husband or children. And they are the people who are consigned to Widowland. And it's actually inspired by a real attitude that happened in wartime Germany, when the population had to be given rations, and you actually had a specific number of calories allocated to you according to your value to society. And the very lowest value people were called Friedhofen, which means cemetery women, that was their nickname, because they were useless. They were old women who were useless. They didn't need the food anymore. I was very struck by that. And I thought, so in this alternative history where these Nazi ideals have come to Britain, what if there's a whole range of single, older women over 50 who have been marginalised and, and put together in these places? And I thought the one thing you can guarantee if there are a whole lot of women together of a certain age is that there'll be keen readers. So actually, yeah. women, um, <laughs> will be the most literate places in the whole of society. And this is where the motor of the thriller comes in. Widowhood is interesting when you talk about it from a historical perspective, because in many ways, in the long and distant past, not not sort of 20th century, but previous, widowhood was, for many women, was kind of an ideal status. If you'd been married to someone you didn't really want to be married to, and they had died and left you in a reasonable situation financially, it was actually kind of, in many ways, a gateway to independence. I live in Cambridge and Clare College, fantastic building, just incredible, obviously, college in itself as part of the university, gorgeous building, lovely legacy for someone to leave, was left by a woman who was widowed three times by the age of 21 in 14-something. And I always remember thinking... That kind of sounds like the ideal scenario to me. It's like the wife of Bath with four husbands at the church door. You're absolutely right. And historically, you've been able to say that. If you think of the Merry Widow, you know, which actually weirdly was Hitler's favourite operetta. You know, you think of traditional widowhood. There have been phases when actually it's been an advantage for women. But that's unspeakable now. It's the kind of thing that now is a, a taboo. You couldn't... Well, it's very hard to articulate that and yeah. say, well, being widowed is, is great because you've got financial independence. You don't have somebody kind of running your life or controlling you if you had a particularly controlling husband. Nobody says that. That's a taboo thing to say. We've almost reverted, I think, to almost biblical. You know, if you think of the, the widow's might, you know, a much more primitive idea. But you're right. In a lot of history, being widowed was a freeing thing for women. But I think the reason we don't think about it like that now is because we absolutely prioritise the couple relationship and the importance of intimacy. Mm. And we think it's far more important to invest our intimacy in a sexual partnership relationship than it is, say, with friends or definitely we're in a world where the couple relationship is what matters. Yeah. You know. I went to school in Bedford, which has a really high, for reasons I won't go into because it's long and probably quite boring, but has a really high level of Italians there. And I can remember sitting on my school bus and quite often we would see a widow. And you knew she was a widow because she was dressed from head to toe in black. And I had friends at school who had grandmothers 
who only wore black and had worn black for 10, 20 years since their husband had died. I remember being so fascinated by the fact that, that they were put in that category and never allowed out of it. That was the category that they were in forever. You were never going to be anything other than a widow. I mean, Queen Victoria kind of did that as well, didn't she? Absolutely. So she's the stereotypical idea of a widow, isn't it? She, you know, her husband died at the age of 42 and she always wore black from then on. And another very interesting thing is the difference between widows and widowers. So I Mm, went... Yes, I have a question about that as well. I was invited to a, a dinner and placed next to depressingly, a 93-year-old <laughs> law lord he was. He's a retired judge. So that was the interesting thing. Sad that I wasn't placed opposite a 60-year-old silver fox, but <laughs> he was a 93-year-old. He was rather sort of brisk. And he said, so, uh, you know, what's your marital status? So when I told him, he said, oh, widows, widows. Yes, we know a lot of widows. And I said, right. And he said, I was a widower once, but of course, only for a very short while, because widowers get snapped up very quickly, whereas widows are just everywhere. (laughs) And in his kind of unempathetic law lord way, he was articulating what is the truth, Mm. which is that if you're a man who is sadly bereaved, there'll be somebody for you in, in a jot. I had a very, another dinner, it makes it sound like I go to a lot of dinners, but... (laughs) So not true. Anyhow, another dinner, I was thoughtfully placed next to a man who had been recently bereaved and whose wife had died of cancer on the understanding that we'd have loads to talk about. We could just talk about cancer all night. Anyhow, he was interesting and it was it was fun. But directly opposite us was a woman who was staring with narrowed eyes at our exchanges. After a while, I said, who's the lady opposite? And he said, Oh, that's my wife's best friend. She has been so wonderful. She's come everywhere with me. She looks after me. And I just thought, oh, and she's going to marry you. Are they married now? Yes. So interesting. (laughs) Society tends to rally round men when they're put in this circumstance more than women. A bit the same as when my brother is a single dad and... People talk about how brilliant he is way more than they talk about how brilliant a lot of single mums that I know. I know it's the same with widowhood. People think, how is he going to look after the kids? And, and women are just expected to get on with it. But I am in that interested in that question of moving on. People that I know that have been widowed, actually, especially when I was younger. I can remember conversations going on about too soon, those words this person was in another relationship already was it too soon was it was there something disrespectful going on about this and I've seen it happen I know when the comedian Patton Oswald's wife died and then he remarried within a year I saw people openly discussing it on Twitter that it was too soon and I just always think it's surely Christ none of your business I don't understand why it's your business I'm sure if I'd died instead of Philip he would have been married within the year so (laughs) I do think there's definitely a, a kind of gender divide there. And that there is a sort of slight too soony aspect. I mean, the other thing about even using the word widow is it makes it sound like it's all about you. Whereas actually one's husband who's who's had the terrible thing happen to them and at least I'm still standing. So this was the genesis of the novel. But what I really wanted to do was to write this very fast paced thriller set over two weeks. It's 1953. It's coronation year. 
but it's not the coronation of Elizabeth II. It's the coronation of Edward and Wallace, who have been ruling as king and queen, but they said that they'll, they won't actually have the coronation ceremony until the leader is able to come over from Germany and, and be present. And it, so it's taken 13 years. And in this 13 years, society in Britain has undergone this dramatic change. And the most dramatic change is that women now have are now segregated into different castes. And our heroine is actually in the top caste. She works for the culture ministry. Her name's Rose. And her job is to edit classic novels that have inappropriate depictions of women. And in Nazi ideology, that would mean any women who challenged men, were insubordinate, were not obedient, were more intelligent than the man. You can see where I'm going. It's Mm. most 19th century literature. And so she's tasked with rewriting Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, Middlemarch, just to make the women, just to make Lizzie Bennet and Dorothea Brooke and Jane Eyre a little bit less feisty and more submissive and, and just to correct things. And although this sounds like wild imagination, actually, it was rooted in the, my discovery that Alfred Rosenberg, this Nazi philosopher and madman, had in fact instituted an SS task force in the war to comb the libraries of Europe and seek out history books and actually have them rewritten to reflect the correct national socialist view of history. Mm. We always have this idea of the Nazis burn books, and obviously they did. But the idea that you would actually get books and rewrite them was so extraordinary, but also strangely so typical of that horrific regime. So I just extrapolated from that, and I thought, what if you rewrote English literature? So that here we have Rose, and she's having to kind of read these books that she's never tackled and rewrite them. And of course, what happens when you open the pages of Jane Eyre or Middlemarch is, of course, that sensibility reaches inside and touches you. Mm. And so, without knowing it, her eyes are opened. And at the same time, this terrible thing has been happening across the realm, which is that subversive graffiti is being daubed on public buildings. And the graffiti is... Samistat lines from the novels of women, Bronte's, Virginia Woolf, Mary Wollstonecraft. And she's never seen these. And the authorities are very, very worried about them. And they want Rose to go into the Widowlands, which is where they think they're coming from, find out who's doing it, because it's an embarrassment and it has to stop before the big coronation day. So this is Rose's task in the novel. She has to go into the Widowlands, meet these older women and find out if they're responsible for the graffiti. And of course, what happens is she finds something much bigger and more disturbing. Sounds terrific. I love an alternate history. When they're done well, everything that you've just said sounds like it could have just happened. It totally could have happened. I've written a good 10 books set in wartime and pre-war 1930s in Europe. And the more you look at what particularly the Nazis did, the more extraordinary I mean, obviously horrific, and let's say that right up, but also the more extraordinary, the level of detail. My last novel, which was called The Words I Never Wrote, which is set in Germany across the span of the war from what, from 1936 right up to 1946, I've looked at some of that detail. For example, there was a Jewish hospital in Berlin just for Jewish people, and if the Nazis rounded up Jews who weren't well, who were sick, 
they were often sent to this hospital to recover before they would be deported to a concentration camp. Extraordinary. Isn't you that think- bizarre? So that is the kind of weird thing that I've always been transfixed by. I mean, my, all my other novels have been about the Nazi treatment of women and, and how, what it was like living in a very controlled, authoritarian, totalitarian society. And I actually began writing about it because I discovered the Reich Fashion Bureau. One of the first things that Hitler did when he came to Paris, he set up a fashion bureau for women because he had worked out over the years what he wanted women to wear and how they should look. And he was obsessed with the status, how women should be, and very, very controlling of them. And I just thought, I can't believe that you would do this. You would have fashion bureau with kind of a certain number of templates mm. of how, how a woman should dress. But this indeed happened. So I've always been very interested in in that. My I did a whole series of novels about an Englishwoman called Clara Vine, who lives in Germany in the war, or before the war. So this has been my great interest in how women are controlled. And when I moved to writing Widowland, I wanted a slightly more dystopian sense. Mm. So it's not specifically rooted in, most of it is rooted in history, but some of it obviously isn't. England was never a protectorate. But I wanted to take this kind of mad attention to detail and see how it would transform English society. My mum was widowed in 2016 and I really, really, really wanted to be able to do something or say something, you know, to help her. And despite the fact that I was also, I had lost someone, that was that was my dad, I was also very upset. There felt something in it that I just couldn't grasp, probably because I've never been married myself. I wonder, is that a universal experience for widows? And if it is... Where do you find your people? Where do you find people that do understand what you're talking about? I was very struck at Prince Philip's funeral and you saw the picture of the Queen all alone. And what people focused on was that she had lost this person who she had shared so much of her life. And I think what it is, is that when you've lived alongside somebody for that long, they're not just your photo album. You know, they they actually are part of you mm. because they remember bits of your life that you don't remember and vice versa. So deeply knitted into your being that one of the things that happens when women are widowed often is that they've lost just this huge chunk of their being and their self. And so they have to, you know, really they have to recompose themselves. I didn't think it was quite that case with the Queen. I mean, people did say with the Queen, oh, he was the only person that could call her cabbage and he was the only person that could treat her like a human being. But she's also very used to being alone because she is a figurehead and Mm. a symbol. But I think for for an awful lot of women who spent nearly all their adult life with one other human being, it's like losing a limb or something. They have genuinely lost a huge chunk of themselves because nobody else sees them in that specific way. You could say that applies to any partnership. It's not just widows. And you, then you could also say, well, doesn't that apply to divorced people? And I think it does and it doesn't. Because if you're divorced, that other person is still walking the earth. Mm. You know, there is another person out there who knows all those things and remembers all those things. But I think with, with death, it's pretty final and that person isn't there. And the strange state it induces in you is that you don't believe it. You've got this 
awful, I think a good two years when you don't quite believe it's true. Something awful happened, actually. I shouldn't really laugh, and it's not really laughable. But shortly after Philip died, I got a call from the funeral parlour. And you are unhinged, particularly if you've nursed someone and actually been with them when they died. You are literally not in your right mind. Anyhow, I got this call, and they said, oh, hello, this is the funeral parlour. We've got some really good news for you. I said, is, is he alive? <laughs> and they said, oh, no, 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 he's not alive. But we've got this discount offer running through March. And <laughs> it was just surreal. And I think anyone that has lost somebody would know that that moment, you think, of course they're not dead. Of course they're still alive. Yeah. It was so funny, but it was so awful. One of the things you mentioned right at the beginning about, you know, how lockdown's changed our, our viewpoints. And I think one of the biggest and worst things that will remain with us as a result of lockdown will be the unspent grief of people who were unable to be with their partner yeah. or parent or child when they died. Because what I can say is that those moments when you're all together, I mean, we were all very much with Philip pretty much constantly for, well, months really, absolutely going through the whole process. And it was tremendously important for us to be there. And I I almost cannot speak to say how unfinished and awful it is for people who could think of their partner or their husband dying without them and then also the horror of those funerals so you don't even have that feeling funerals really important because you're all paying tribute and sort of commemorating and not to have that oh I think that's going to be a thing that's going to last and last and I don't know how people will grapple with it really this is very far away from the subject matter of my book I do think that's a that's a lockdown thing that we haven't begun to approach I mean Societies have death rituals for a reason and and have done since prehistoric times. And this has been a scenario in which we haven't been able to have those rituals. So that's a bit of a gloomy line. But I think I think that's that's definitely something that's changed this year. No, I think it's very true. I did want to ask you one other thing, which is kind of a practical thing as someone who's been through it. How important was having your practicality financial whatever ducks in order to you (laughs) (laughs) it's horrifying philip perhaps because he was a detective writer was quite obsessed with kind of confidentiality i remember him always saying i change all my passwords every month and i change them according to a book and i'll go to a different chapter in the book and choose the penultimate word in the page of the book Now, fine, that's hilarious when you're alive. (laughs) You've died and somebody else is trying to work out what the hell the password is. Yeah, so the whole, I think people have not dwelt enough on the huge challenge that probate is. You know, most people haven't got a clue until it happens to them. It's a very big and confusing thing. There's loads to do. And I mean, what I would just urge people, it must be awful if women have not involved themselves in the financial mm. side of the partnership and often blokes say you know that's my department I do, I do all that and women gladly say right you take care of that and so it can be that's so difficult and time consuming but it's part of 
you know, you've got to go through it and work out where all the direct debits lie, what happens with the bank account. I keep saying to my children, this is here, this is here. I've simplified everything. And they go, don't talk about it, mom. We don't want to think about, you know, but, and of course, you know, I don't want to think about that too. But all I can say is make it easy, write stuff down, you know, involve your partner in financial things because the hell of it going through it afterwards. And also it's quite time, you know, lots of things like registering the death, Mm. which is, you know, what does that mean? You have to do it within a very brief couple of days to make an appointment to do it. And if you don't get enough death certificates, you will subsequently discover that every single bank account... Yeah, that's an outrage. ...requires a death certificate. Yeah. Somebody said to me, you need minimum 10 death certificates. And I said, oh, don't be ridiculous. They start charging you. And trying to get the death certificates much later is hard. So you have to, at the time, go, I want 10 death certificates. They're not that expensive at the time, but doing it later makes it much more complicated. So that's a, that's a little thing. Yeah. Little tip, get 10 death certificates. Yeah. After my dad died, because my mum was actually poorly when my, my dad died, so I kind of had to do a lot of that stuff, which I, I didn't mind doing, immediately came home and like just looked at the stuff that I had in my house and thought, how much of this shit do I actually need? Because... Mm. I don't want this to become somebody else's problem if something happens to me. So I need to know what is in the loft? What is in that box of paperwork? And actually it did inspire me to get a bit more on top of my, even though I don't have a partner, it will still go to someone. My poor brother or sister will have to come and root through all of my possessions. And I thought I feel a moral responsibility to make it as easy as possible for whoever. Because if I go and get hit by a bus tomorrow, they're not going to know the first thing about anything that's going on in, in my sort of financial or like you say how, how to get into my laptop how to get into my phone even the simplest things that you would need how to and contact it, people it does dramatically change your attitude towards even sort of material possessions and things because su- sudden and and kind of quite early death which I suppose 62 is you just think all those things you know you you kind of accumulated and suddenly they're they're worthless you're not going to be wearing them or using them at all so it definitely makes you well I am sure this doesn't have to be universal but it certainly had this effect on me of just like literally not caring anymore about any possessions (laughs) at all I literally don't care I mean you know I just sort of don't want to be too larkin about this but you know what it makes you think is what it says in the bible you know human life is a vapor it's over very fast and all those things you thought were so important they aren't ditto friends the interesting thing is the friends that you cultivated because they were glitzy or aren't the friends that that come and stay with you I god you know we really discovered that there are people who are so frightened of death that they haven't even grown-ups who should know better have not yet worked out what to say and there's a cliche, I mean, you see it in the Sopranos and things, in which you just say this line, I'm sorry for your loss. It's a cliche thing to say, but it works. Never shy away from it. Always say, I'm sorry for your loss. It's a really easy thing to say, because it is acknowledging the importance of what's happened to the person. And if you just carry on as though things haven't happened, 
in, which that, that happened in a few cases to me. But, you know, I'm so kind of emotional and I'm always talking, you know, that people didn't really avoid the subject so much with me. But I do think that's a terribly important line. It's easy. It's heartfelt and it works. Jane, this has been really interesting and you've been very open and honest and I am very grateful for it. Widowland is out in June. June the 10th, fast-paced thriller set in an alternative England of 1953. Yeah, I'm loving the sound of that. Thank you ever so much for your time. Thank you. Standard issue for all women.